we even need liquidity, right? Some people say don't over leverage. That's true. But what determines your over leverage? Do you have liquidity? Do you have cash flow? Are your other projects strong? How strong are you financially? How strong are your partners? These are some things you can look at. And these are the sorts of things that people we're looking at because we've been spoiled. Welcome back, investor, to another episode of the Passive Income Adventures, where we have Dr. George Roberts on today. And I had to tell you, we're just going to jump right into the show. George explains his background in biotech and how he kind of had that coming to light moment of, yeah, I'm making good money, but this is not the lifestyle that I want. And it's probably not going to give me the retirement that I want either. So jump in on George's story. This is the channel where we tell you how to take more adventures, how to pay for them. And George is a living embodiment of making that shift from that nine to five high paid professional over to the passive income enthusiasts living the life of his dreams. We're live, George Roberts. Welcome everybody to another episode of Passive Income Adventures. George, you are Dr. Roberts. Can you introduce yourself real fast? Tell us what your specialty is and then we will kind of dive into learning a little bit more about your background. Okay. Yeah. When you call me Dr. Roberts, I don't know how many steps to go back. I mean, that was half a lifetime ago. So what is my specialty? Multi-family investing. That's what I do as an active investor, as a passive investor. I'm all over the place. Love different types of real estate, early stage companies, private equity. We can talk about all that if you're interested. Love stocks. Great way to get some liquidity. So that's sort of where I'm at and the basics. I'll let you take it from here. What you'd like to hear more about. I, well, I love the distinction that you make between what you specialize in as an active investor and how you're all over the place as a passive investor. That really mirrors closely to what I do myself and what I recommend. I mean, not that I can recommend anything. I'm not a financial planner. But what I recommend most people do is spend your time on the thing that you're good at and the thing that you can actually affect returns with your expertise. And then when you're a little weaker, again, diversification is the bulwark against ignorance. And so if I feel a little bit more ignorant, I'm going to find an expert and invest with them. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you got started in investing, how you finally got into your multifamily specialty and how you get confidence to be able to invest in things that maybe you're not an expert at passively? Sure. I started out as a, I guess you'd call it an accidental landlord. Depths of the Great Recession didn't make sense to sell the house but it made a whole lot of sense to buy a larger home. So we did that. And with my father's encouragement, father, lifetime entrepreneur said, just keep the house. It'll work out. And you know what? With the cash flow from that, we were pretty much able to do it. And, and it actually sort of augmented us. Of course, we could have had lower payments, et cetera, but we took a slightly harder route and found out that real estate investing is amazing. So I call it my full start though, because I didn't really learn a lot about real estate investing and I really just wanted to keep it simple. And so, I, you know, we didn't really raise the rent like we should have all these things we should have done, but you know, it was a great investment. We got cash flow, And by the time we sold it, we we're actually able to get nominally more money, higher price than what we put into it. Whereas we would have been cut in half if we had sold it at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So you buy low, sell high. It's like you took your own advice. How did you, how did you get around? Yes. Yeah. I like your thing, you know, the fundamentals of real estate investing don't change. So I know that's one of your themes and it's a hundred percent true. Well, I'm a lot of people that I know ended up as accidental landlords at that point of the economy when they were underwater on their house. And as long as they could keep making the payments, having it rented out, they just kind of were trying to keep it alive, kick the ball down the court so to speak, until things recovered. But a lot of people just hated it. They, oh, they didn't pay and they tore the place up. And so how did you handle it? Did you get lucky with some good tenants who didn't do that? Or did you go into it thinking, 
tenants are going to be tenants and I better get ready. That's one of the reasons why we raised the rent. We had one tenant the whole time, mm. seven years. And the husband, he was actually a groundskeeper and in maintenance. He mm. only asked me to fix one thing once. He didn't know how to, to fix the drip in the shower. I gave him this little shout. I showed him, you know, you get this little puller thing. You pull the core and you put a new one in. And he's like, I'm sorry, man. It's like, you're a tenant. You don't have to do these things. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, it was really no must, no fuss. But I realized when I went back to it, you know, hey, I know how to be a landlord, but look, I'm going to educate myself this time. I'm going to do it at scale. So that brought me into multifamily. Started out with 14 units, 2020. Just refinanced that with Freddie Mac. Great to have my first agency loan. Why did it take so long for the first agency loan? Because I'm telling you, it's beautiful to work with seller financing. And I don't regret that decision. But it's also beautiful to get these amazing uh, GSE loans. I mean, they have unfair access to capital, let's be clear. And they are able to offer a deal that you just really can't quite get from the private market. That's true. One of the buildings that we have that, I hate to say this, through no mastery of management on our part. I don't think I'm a bad asset manager, but I'm certainly not a passionate asset manager. We have stabilized it with a Freddie Mac loan. And I feel like if we'd bought it a year, two years later, we got caught in all the interest rates going up and all this, and we didn't have a stabilized loan on it, that project would have been in trouble. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I feel like some of the projects that we are invested in right now as limited partners are either underperforming or not performing. And I'm looking at the management of it thinking like there, there's really nothing here that we could do from a management perspective that would fix this problem. Can you tell us what's going on with multifamily right now? It was the darling of years ago and now it's on everybody's naughty list. Well, yeah. I mean, as they say, the time to invest is when blood is running in the streets. I believe that was Peter Lynch, one up on Wall Street. Great quotes. So yeah, it was the darling of investments for a long time because you have these low unstable rates, valuations going up every year. You got cash flow. Why wouldn't you love it? Well, a lot of people got caught out. A lot of projects in difficulty, as you were mentioning. If you have variable rate interest and you have the most rapid interest rate hikes in history, that tends to put people in trouble. So what do you do? Mm -hmm. Well, again, getting back to your theme of how the fundamentals of investing never change. So you need liquidity. Right. Some people say don't over leverage. Well, that's true. But what determines your over leverage? Do you have liquidity? Do you have cash flow? Are your other projects strong? How strong are you financially? How strong are your partners? These are some things you can look at. And these are the sorts of things that people weren't looking at because we've been spoiled for the longest time in an int low interest rate environment where you have stable or improving property values every year. We just, I just do your first deal. Just get out there, get a deal. And you hear that, that's really bad advice. Just because advice works for a dozen years doesn't make it good advice. <laughs> that's a really good point. I feel like it worked really well for me, the first deal that we got into. Mm -hmm. I, again, it's that deal that I'm referring to. It's on a stable Freddie Mac because we got into it bef enough before the peak that we had an opportunity to stabilize it and get it refinanced before all this craziness happened. We closed the week that everything shut down in March of 2020. And we thought at that point that we had made a huge mistake. But what were we going to do? We closed like a few days before the shutdown and we had to spend the money on the value add. There was no way we could just pile up cash and sit on it. The place was falling apart. And so we really felt scared, but it ended up being a nice little performing property that we still own. But some other properties that we're looking at that bought later and those, even though those they had rate caps, 
the rates started skyrocketing at the same time COVID subsidies went away. And so you had this double effect from rates going up from the inflation that these subsidies cause and take the subsidies away and people can no longer pay their rent. Really, is there any amount of marketing you can do or management genius to be able to get yourself out of a hole like that? Because it seemed like some of those projects, the managers were doing the best they could to keep it leased up, but delinquency was going up at the same time that payments were going up. And it was, it's was it been a really rough spot for a lot of operators right now. Well, apart from you know having reserves, which I think is the best thing anyone can do, when you do your underwriting, can you pivot? Do you have two or more exit strategies? What if you decide to do less renovations? Are you starting with below market rents? Could you just decide that, hey, well, first of all, one of the mistakes I see people are not putting proper reserves. Okay. Mm-hmm. The bank doesn't take you put set aside three months or six months of pay principal and interest or you know, expenses in general, operating expenses. Like those are mean you should do it. So make sure you have those reserves and ask yourself, what if we have to pivot? What happens? And I think a lot of people, they have the underwrite one scenario and it works. And they're really not asking what happens if things go wrong. And you really have to do that. That's one of the things I really like about the RV park that we're invested in right now. When we first got it, it was the unsexiest deal I think I'd ever seen. I was almost embarrassed. Well, I was embarrassed to put it on social media. But the thing I like about it is it's a cash flowing business in place. There is opportunity for value add, but it doesn't need the value add in order to be a good cash flowing business at our purchase price. And that was what really made me fall in love with it because I felt like we could literally do nothing with this and have it still cash flow. And so those in place cash flows at your current price, your current purchase price for us has been the game changer on our most recent acquisition. Yeah, exactly. That, That cash flow when you take over having proper underwriting, making sure that you can handle the increase in insurance that, you know, obviously that you went to the trouble of getting the proper quote before doing this. Plus the next year, when it goes up for crazy reasons beyond your control, you want to make sure that you've done all that. But yes, exactly. You've got to make sure that you have that bridge to the future. Yeah, exactly. Insurance rates were another one. I don't think a lot of people saw coming. There's an asset that we hold in Florida. We were in Florida for a couple of months. We were thinking we were going to stay there the rest of this year, buy a house. But when we saw insurance rates had increased 50 to 100% over a 12-month period of time, what do you see happening in those insurance markets right now? I don't know how this can continue. And if insurance companies will choose to no longer insure those areas, it's going to start leaving some coverage holes. I mean, what do you see happening there? Well, it's not. And Florida is a great example or bad example, depending on how you're looking at it. It's terrible. And they had some problems in the residential space. In Florida, you could just sign your claim over to somebody who has an interest in making that claim and giving a new roof, even though only a couple of shingles blew off. Mm. Well, that was bad. And it led to a lot of trouble. You have a very constrained market, very few things that you can do there. I'll tell you some things that we're doing. I mean, we, when we get a, this is one of the things the insurance companies will do. They'll come by. They'll look for an excuse not to insure you because even though they wanted to insure you when you paid your premium, they'll say like, well, you know what, you know, we noticed, you know, that you got a crack in the pavement here or, you know, why was that not an issue when you insured me? You sent somebody out to look at the property. That crack has been there for 10 years. So you got to go fix that right away because I'll tell you what's going to happen next. You're going to get a letter saying, well, you're uninsurable and whether it's something about your fire suppression system, I mean, you deal with that immediately because 
even though it wasn't an issue, and even though you can tell that they're playing a game with you, if you're in Florida and you want to operate in Florida, you want as many chances, many opportunities as possible to get a decent insurance rate. Well, I'd also like to share with you something maybe even a little more fundamental than that. My three favorite words in investing, margin of safety, come straight from the intelligent investor, Benjamin Graham, mentor to Warren Buffett. I really think that all investing is really value investing. And do you go in with a margin of safety? Because if you don't, first of all, there are the mistakes you could make, right? Like you, you think you're going to get your insurance at a certain, you know, but whatever happens, or you think you can get this bank loan, that's a better one. How many times have you been left at the altar and, you know, the loan doesn't come through? How much wiggle room do you have? So, so first of all, there's the mistakes that you can make. Like, I think we can raise rent $250 and you can only raise 125. But then there are also the things that you have no control over. I mean, Emma, if there is a recession tomorrow, it's not my fault and it's not your fault. But if we don't have that margin of safety in our deals, it is our fault. So we have to be able to say like, well, what happens if we go to 10% occupancy? Like, what is your break-even occupancy? You got to look at those things. Make sure that you've got margin of safety programmed in on multiple levels. Well, how do you feel about the dollar cost averaging in real estate? Because if we are looking at deals during the height, let's say during the craziness of 2018 to 2022, especially in multifamily, and there were no deals to be done unless there were certain almost risks that were tolerated. It, but if you say, okay, well, we're just not going to buy right now because we're not willing to tolerate these increased risks because when deals were everywhere, this is how we did it. And we're having to kind of tighten up as things go down. And that's one thing I noticed. It, it, is it better to do a deal that has slightly less margin of safety when other, or not do a deal at all, if you, especially if you're doing kind of a dollar cost averaging approach where you're going to buy whether the market's up or whether the market's down? Well, I feel like you always want to keep a certain amount in there. And there are other things you can do with your money. Now, we didn't know the stock market was going to continue to remain stable or up over the time frame, but there are other things to do with your money. So I think one of the biggest mistakes people do make with passive or even active investing is like, well, this is what I do. Okay, so we're going to continue to do deals. You got to find the right deals. And if you have to lay back a little bit and work more on the educational leg of your business so that you're in place to do the deals when they happen. So yeah, I like the idea of dollar cost averaging, but at the same time, you can say, well, people don't dollar cost. I mean, people don't time the market. You can't time the market. Well, that's like people saying that we have efficient markets. Well, if you have efficient markets, then how do you explain Warren Buffett? Okay. How does he do well year after year after year? You have people who, and again, he doesn't, he's not beating the market every year. You have a tech bubble. Maybe Buffett's a little behind, but that doesn't mean he lost his touch. Look at three years, five years, 10 years. Show me any time that somebody who follows a disciplined value investing approach that hasn't been ahead of the market over any five-year time frame. So how do you get ahead of the market? How do you time the market? Well, I think in some ways, the best way to do that is if you could just leave out the worst investments, right? Or the worst time frames. Already, you should be able to, to find inefficiencies in the market and you should be able to time the market. So yes, even though I'm not going to say I'm a market timer, I'm in or I'm out. You do, I think you need to let that play into your investment thesis to a certain degree. So being willing to be out, I think is was what was working for us. So when we got to the point where I felt like everybody's talking about multifamily and 
it was like when crypto became a household name, like we were starting to hear about crypto back in the mid, the mid 2000s, oh, yeah. right? And I couldn't figure out how to invest in crypto back then because it was the technical IT skills that you needed to be able to get on there and actually buy some sort of a Bitcoin. I tried a couple of times. I just couldn't figure it out. But then when things like Coinbase came around and it started becoming this mainstream thing, I thought, oh, okay, once regular human neighbors are talking about it, I know it's probably hitting some sort of a height or a bubble. And I saw the same thing in multifamily, maybe not as bad as crypto because my neighbors weren't talking about it. But regular real estate people, they all wanted to get into it. And I thought, okay, well, I've got a couple of these multifamily things now. And I'm seeing this bubble happening. I'm seeing the fundamentals are no longer penciling. The deals aren't penciling. I'm going to keep looking for deals, but I'm only going to do the ones that are extremely conservative. And so the ability to sit out, I didn't decide to sit out. I ended up sitting out because we just couldn't find anything that really penciled for a while. And so even though I didn't plan it, it just kind of happened. Yeah, I think that's where discipline is essential. And unfortunately, I think it's rare, but that's what creates the inefficiencies in the market. That's what makes it possible for somebody like you or I to be just a little smarter than the average bear and go out there and make really good money year after year. It's like the old adage about when your shine boy starts telling you about stock tips, right? Time yeah. to get out. <laughs> and what I saw happening is you got all these gurus. And they're turning out just dozens, hundreds, I mean, over years, thousands of students. At that rate, you got to believe that either everybody in our society is going to become a multifamily investor or something else is going to happen because trends don't continue forever, right? Trees yeah. don't grow to the sky. And well, that's something else happened. Yeah. And I found that from the one, well, from the one sense, I felt like when the SEC changed its rules about advertising these larger deals and these private equity deals, it really broke open the competition because people like me would never have heard about it before. It was for rich people to word of mouth, tell their rich people friends to invest. And we weren't even allowed to hear about it because they couldn't advertise. And so if I didn't know a rich guy who was going to tell me come invest, then I was kind of locked out of it. And so when I first started hearing these whisperings, when we were allowed to advertise, I felt like, yeah, this is great because regular people like me can now get involved. But at the same time, I thought, well, if regular people like me, stay at home, school mom of six kids, is getting involved, then just think about how much competition there is out there. Do you think that that increased competition in regular people being educated by gurus and thousands of students contributed to that bubble at all? Well, absolutely. And you're referring to a 2013 Jobs Act that allowed these new 506C deals and also crowdfunding, which yeah. is like, you know, the 506C on steroids. Certainly it has. I mean, I've seen it even in the last few years. I mean, it used to be 506B and 506C. And now it's like, where do you, I mean, I rarely see the 506B deals anymore. It seems like everybody is doing 506C. And it's, I mean, it went from you know, like a landslide to an avalanche. It's, mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to watch out for that. I mean, but it's two ways to it too, because, or two sides to the story, because like you said, hey, if you got to be in the country club to hear about something, well, that's not right either. So I'm not a big fan of the crowdfunding because I feel like, well, if you do have $50,000 or in some cases, maybe even 20, you're going to get a better deal. It's like, uh, also you were mentioning the crypto, like when it was hard to invest in the people who did, they made a lot of money. Yeah. But when it's Coinbase, like I worked in IT and it's like every dude down the hall is talking about oh, $20,000. I was like, yeah, but then it was back down to 10 and it's, you know, duh, oh my goodness. Aye, aye. When you hear about people who don't normally invest 
talk about new asset classes. Like, yeah, that really frightened me. It really frightened me away. And I had friends who told me to get into Bitcoin. I want to say it was like, can't even tell you what it was, but it was like just maybe a few thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. But again, if I can't value, I'm a value investor. If I can't value it and I can't say that this asset is worth this because it produces this cash flow or because it's tied back to this asset. I mean, there are like stable coins that are tied back to say like a dollar or some commodity or something. But the idea is if, you know, but that's different. You're not going to make a killing. And so, so I think, you know, on the one hand, for me, it just doesn't make sense. I can't value it. So I'm going to call it speculation. And then the other thing I do is just like selling air. I remember getting, maybe it was five years or six years ago, this class, like create your own digital currency. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You're teaching a class for $29.99 where I can create my own digital currency. Now, I already knew you got initial coin offerings coming out every day. But when it gets commoditized to the point that, you know, create your own digital currency, it's literally based on nothing. Now, I don't want to, you know, start getting into the gold bug discussion about how money's got to be stable. It's got to be real. But, you know, when you have something that you can literally create as much as you want, danger. Wasn't it Charlie Munger, though, who said buy expensive air? (laughs) I had to go look for that. He's amazing. One of my favorite investors, but I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to go look it up, too. It was something about buying a product that everybody needs that you can get a great deal at, but then you can charge a lot of money for it. I'd have to go well, back. Exactly. When I go to Las Vegas, I see the air bar. And I think yes. that's digital currency. They're selling air. But, <laughs> you know, hey, as long as you can create this false sense of scarcity and you can get people to inhale air. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think they, it's like well, oxygen enriched. I've heard of divers doing that, right? Oh, what do you do in Las Vegas? Drink too much. And then you go and get the, the oxygen, but it's not good for your lungs. Just don't do that. I don't know. Well, one of the things I don't even know if it's oxygen risk. To me, it just looks ridiculous. I think don't do it. Don't buy air and don't buy digital currencies. Warren Buffett calls it pure FOMO. And, you know, I wish I had a better quote, but I don't. It's pure FOMO. It's true. I feel like real estate for me has been a solution to a problem that I've been struggling with in the investing world for a long time because I feel like real estate is rinse and repeat. It's the most boring, stable business plan I've come across. And coming from a tech startup background as an intern and as a marketer, I've always been a little intimidated by the people who invent the Blue Ocean Next Tech Solution product that we're talking about, like digital contracts, crypto types of contracts, the blockchain. And I'm seeing, oh, this is brilliant. This is genius. This is going to change authentication for deep fake videos and this kind of thing and how useful it is. I don't know how to invest in it. I don't know what to do with it. And I'm not the kind of person who's going to come up with that idea. And I've seen some of my tech startup friends really getting caught in that we've got to come up with the next big thing. We've got to come up with a product that we can convince everybody that they need. So you're out in a blue ocean by yourself, but everybody's going like, what, what are you doing? What is this? And what's the value here? And so for real estate, I just felt like it's just basic. You buy a house or a building or whatever that's undervalued, you fix it up and then you just put it back on the regular market. And I just keep doing that over and over again. In a very boring sense, do you find, because you're invested in a wide variety of things, do you find that the ones with the most boring business plans are the ones that are most attractive to you from that discipline standpoint? Or do you dabble around a little bit in blue ocean stuff as well? Well, well, both, because I am a diversification guy. I'm huge on diversification. But again, huge value investor. Warren Buffett will tell you that the boring businesses are really where it's at. 
And that's exactly 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. I love where you're coming from because I love real estate for that. I don't know of a more scalable business. You know, if you, if you I mean, it, it's not like electric automobiles, okay? You got to be a genius to start up an automobile company, okay? <laughs> People like Elon Musk are geniuses. I love to invest with geniuses. And I do love, I love investing in startups. But you know what? I'm not going to be the guy who has to always go out there and try and find the blue ocean because the blue ocean turns into a red ocean. The way, and I love the way you describe it too, because it's like, and then you're so far out there that people ask, what are you doing? And that's the other thing. And then you've got all these small businesses. I shouldn't say small businesses, startup businesses that, you know, it's like, well, hey, we're going to value this on the basis of the number of users we have. And oh my goodness. I mean, I've seen that story before. <laughs> But I see all these businesses, I'm going to try not to pick on one directly and get you in legal trouble, but there's don't get legal group. trouble. Huh? Please don't you get don't me in legal trouble. trouble. Okay, yeah, you agree? Okay, so no legal trouble today, promise. But you can contact teachers, okay? And this company, all they get is the first four lessons. They get a cut of that, but then you make a deal directly with your teacher. So I've been using that to, to learn Argentine Spanish. But when we get into the passive income, we can talk about my successes and my trials and my goals and things. Well, one of my goals is to go and do some slow travel, spend some time in Argentina. The Spanish is really great. So I came in contact with the company, but I'm thinking, that is a dumb business. Am I going to invest in your company when you're only making money off of the first four lessons? Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. But I know what they're doing. They're trying to make it so that it makes sense for the students and for the teachers. And they're going to get a whole bunch of users. And they're going to probably try and value that thing just like those late 1990s businesses were valued. Like, uh, I'm trying to think, which was it? It was, I want to say it was the browser. They were giving it away for free. Their stock went through the roof that day. It's like, are you kidding me? Yes, now you can compete with Microsoft. But Microsoft is a revenue-producing business. They actually, now they produce revenue. They've actually got profits. They can do that. You can't. No. Okay. So I feel like we got maybe a little bit ahead of ourselves here because I just love kind of geeking out on this type of stuff, but let's back up a little bit and tell me a little bit more about your personal journey from, you said you have to go back a few years and dig into your history from where you first started thinking, I got to do something a little different if I want to be financially successful. And tell me a little bit about your personal journey from there to kind of where you are right now. Sure. I mean, when I got to the business world, got my IT job, eventually got my six figure salary, I thought, wow, promised land. I'm no longer a bioscientist and working 12 hours a day and getting paid like it's practically minimum wage. It's ridiculous. But I realized yeah. that there's no loyalty. Maybe I realized that a little later in life because I had been doing a lot of other things. My scientific career was quite long. but you know, I did this project where I was kind of out in front. I was exercising a lot of vision. I created something that was just what the company needed, but it's not what the leadership saw at the time. Mm. They weren't seeing the vision. I got demoted for it. Later on, the company wins a prestigious prize for the work I did. But while I'm busy getting my position back and getting back to where I thought I ought to be, you know, oh my goodness, I thought this is ridiculous. So I did two things. I bought a sailboat because I thought, what is the point in having a job where I have vacation, but I'm acting like I'm still a bioscientist where you get vacation, but you don't get to use it. Yeah. Maybe years of work, probably, you know, 
kick you to curb. So, so I bought that sailboat, started taking my family on long journeys. That was my beginnings with slow travel. Because if you go someplace that doesn't have terribly high dock fees, or if you anchor, why, I mean, it's practically free. You got your accommodations paid for, and it's a sailboat, right? I could go around the world with a tank of gas. I just got to get in and out of my slip. So the other thing I did is my sister came to me and she said, let's start a construction company. We're going to build these houses. It's going to be exciting. Okay. So I got my first taste of entrepreneurship. So when I say that, hey, I went back to being a landlord because I knew the business. Okay. So let's take a step back. I knew the business of landlording. I got introduced to entrepreneurship through my sister. Of course, I saw it my whole life through my father, but never really experienced it. Well, then I thought, this is beautiful, but I need my own gift. And I'm going to go back to landlording, do it at scale. And so it was, I had, there were multiple genesis. You know, it's like, I realized corporate world was not what I thought it was. Entrepreneurship is amazing. I keep my own kick. And then finally, it's like, well, what am I going to do? Well, it's going to be multifamily. Right. Gateway drug to commercial real estate. The gateway drug. Yeah. I, well, and the reason why is because the duplex and triplex and fourplex fever will feed the single family investor to saying, well, I want a 20 unit or I want a 50 unit. Yeah. Was that what you said? That's what it looked like for you when you bought your first multifamily. It was a double digit, but smaller asset that you owned. At what point did you say, I'm going to scale this and maybe get into other commercial assets? And one thing I like to, what I find is interesting when we say commercial real estate, residential real estate is one, two, three, or four units. That's it. Everything else is commercial real estate. Farms are yeah. commercial real estate. Warehouses are commercial real estate. Everything else, it's commercial real estate. And so the world out there is really huge. When did you tap into that and say, there's more out here than I thought? Yeah, well, it was shortly after the formation of the construction company. That was my education phase. Like, what am I going to do? And that's when I decided to skip the two, the tri, the quad, that phase. I didn't want to go through that because I thought, well, listen. You already understand finance, you're in fintech. You already understand landlording, even though you have one unit. But the business, it's not rocket science. We're not starting an electric car company here. So, you know, just jump into it with both feet. And because I had the finance, I had some means because I'd been working for many years and I understand finance. It was just perfect. I look at it as this is really the nexus of finance and real estate. And I think, well, that's where I want to be. It's what I know. It's what I like. And then you get this beautiful excuse to go out and meet amazing people like you, Emma, right? I get to go out on awesome podcasts. I get to have awesome people on my podcast. You can check out Emma on my podcast, The Foundry, because there's this added dimension that we go out and we raise capital. So I get this excuse to go out and talk about what I do. I love to teach. I was a teacher, okay? I taught when I was getting my degree. And I had this opportunity then I left academia, but I still get to teach. So it just turned out to me to be the perfect business. That's how I met you. I actually had not heard of you before. And I got this message in my LinkedIn DMs, I believe it was, saying, would you like to come be on my podcast? And I said, sure. And looked you up and you're doing some fascinating stuff. You've got your meetup that you do for networking. And I showed up the first time at that networking meeting and you had this whole different crew of people. I hadn't met really any of them. I thought, oh, wow, all these raving George fans. And I felt like I was dialed into your network. And I feel like 
this type of stuff is game changing. And it's one of the reasons I put myself out there on social media now. We've achieved financial freedom. We have a long way to go before we've achieved Lamborghini freedom, right? But we've achieved financial freedom. And we could just keep investing and maybe keep working at our regular job so that we can make more money to invest and kind of grow that way. But instead, we decided to pivot and start a podcast and put ourselves out there on social media and basically the oversharing creator economy. Because I feel like the people who stuck their neck out there and were raising capital, that's, I mean, let's just be honest, they were raising capital. That's how I met them. And they were putting themselves out there and they changed my life dramatically in just a five-year period of time. And so what you're talking about there, I, I, I struggle with it a little bit because I'm out there raising capital. I can seem a little disingenuous, like, hey, I want to get to know you and your investor goals and you want to put some money in my deal because I still have this discomfort level with basically selling investments. And so can you talk to that a little bit and talk about how you've been able to raise capital as your entrepreneurial journey, investor journey, and how the benefits there, I see the benefits. I'm a recipient of those benefits, but I still struggle with putting that out there. Can we talk about that for a few minutes? Right. Well, everybody knows the first rule of sales is don't sell. Don't yeah. go out and sell. You <laughs> want to go out and create value, whether you call it go-giver or what have you. That's the idea is you go out there and you are helping enough people. They're going to help you. So I think there's really two reasons to go out there, put yourself out there, overshare, <laughs> whatever you call it. it. But the other thing is getting people to send you deals. And that's something I've had even more success in. I've had some success mm -hmm. raising capital. I can do it. I mean, I know there's some people in business, they're just asset managers. They don't want to do it. They don't feel like they do it well. Don't want to be in front of people. And that's okay. And there's some people who do it so well that it seems like it just came natural to them that they have this personality and they have this network and everything just comes together. Well, maybe I'm a little bit in the middle, but I have tons of people who are sending me deals and people include me on their deals because they know me, they like me, they see me adding value. They feel that I'm at a point, whether it's because I could sign on a loan or because I've managed assets before, or whether I've, you know, just having it not being my first rodeo. The fact that it's not my first rodeo, I understand the due diligence. Where you're stuck, or are you gonna fit some numbers? Take a look at this. Does this make sense, George? I'm willing to do that. And that's where I've had the most success is getting people to send me the deals, include me on the deals, whether it's a JV, whether we're going and doing a syndication, but more than anything, it's just fun. It's just fun because it keeps me sharp. It improves my communication skills. It's personal development. And then I get to feel like, hey, I'm out there helping people. I connect them. And even if I'm not part of the deal, even I just say like, hey, I know this KP, look, I can't sign on a loan of that size, but I know this guy over here, he can do that for you. If I can help somebody, make that deal happen. I'm so happy. Yeah. I relate to a lot of what you say because I feel like what you just said describes me. I understand the importance of raising capital. It's what makes deals happen. I see deals all day long that can't get funding. And so they end up not doing the deal with the most talented operators, people who are great at finding deals, but everybody on the team has to raise capital. And that was the thing that I learned when I first started, when my partner said, I think I can raise all the capital for this one. But then when it got hard, it was like all hands on deck. And I'm like, I guess I'm a capital raiser now, right? And I realized yeah. it was the hardest thing for most people to do in real estate. And that's why I decided to specialize in it because there is one way to underscore your value. It's to come in and do the hardest thing. And so I feel like I struggle at it. Definitely not a natural probably somewhere in the middle. I'm a decent asset manager. I'm a decent capital raiser. But my gift really is just getting the right people on the boat and getting the boat 
aimed in the right direction and let's go make this happen. Would you say that describes you fairly well? Yeah, I think it's totally fair. Again, yeah, I'm not the one that looks like a natural raising capital, but I'm happy to do it. But in many ways, it is the thin edge of the wedge. If you can raise capital, even a little bit, most deals these days are all hands on deck. I mean, I started raising capital in 2021. It was hard because I was new. But then all of a sudden, it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm good at this. And all of a sudden, it's still hard because yeah. capital markets changed. So, you know, it's, that's the nature of life. I mean, life changes, it changes again. But even today, even if you can bring in $100,000 into a deal, and you should always invest your own money. So make it 150. That's huge. Because if you've got five or six partners on the deal and two of them are good at raising capital, everybody else brings in $100,000, boom. Now you're raising a million dollars plus on each deal. So yeah, it's huge. I mean, you want to focus on what you're good at. And if that's, you know, asset management, that's perfect. We need asset managers. But yeah, everybody should be able to underwrite, first of all, because you got to know what you're getting yourself into. Got to know what you're getting your investors into. Re-underwrite every deal. Look for a mistake. I mean, that's the trivial end of it. But also be the one who can come in and look at the deal and say, hey, but I see that these assumptions seem to be a little less likely. What's the answer? What answer do you get there? Because even if the answer you, you get is good, it's like, well, then we need to put that in the slide deck. You know, even you've got to sharpen the other tools in the shed. So yeah, everybody needs to be a, an underwriter, but you should also be raising some capital. I mean, you've got some friends, some family, everybody, there's no excuse to say, I can't raise capital. Yeah. Can you speak to the passive investor who's like, I don't want to do any of this. I don't need a real estate side hustle. I've got a successful business or I'm a high paid professional. Uh, when I say, hey, how did you retire early in five years? And I tell them it's because I started a real estate business. Because like you said, business is great. Real estate is great. Why not put them together in the same thing? And they're like, I don't want to start a real estate side hustle. So how can the passive investor know what they need to know to feel comfortable investing? Like, let's get into the diversification side, like they're not going to be the ones that are managing that deal or making a difference on that deal, but they don't feel qualified to invest because they're not specialists in that area. So how much less can a passive investor know about something before they know so little that they have no business investing in that thing? Yeah, I love the way you're asking the question. I don't know. My goal is always to become more savvy. That's why I love, for example, stock investments. I get to study it's the world, right? Every, the stock market covers every industry. Our industries cover all of our needs. So I, I don't know where the threshold lies, but I would say that, you know, you don't want to wait forever. So I would say that if you're the sort of person who has money on the side, you've probably done well in your career. You're a leader. Maybe you're a tech guru, whatever. You know something. So start with what you know. Widen that circle of competence and, you know, do you have to be a good underwriter? You have to at least be able to recognize mistakes. You have to be comfortable going through the numbers. Do you re-underwrite every deal? I say that should be a rule. But even if you don't do that, I mean, you just, I think you just want to get further with each deal. I think that's a good way to go because if you say, well, you know, hey, these are the requirements for investment and don't do it if you're not going to do all these things. I don't know if that's the best way to go, but you want to get more savvy with every deal. So, so go through and ask some hard questions. Like, you know, how did you validate those rent? Because a lot of times what I see is, you know, usually people give you five rent comps. Like that looks a lot like what I see in the OMs. I wonder if that came straight out of the OM. And you know, three of those are way above the subject property. And the other two are somewhat above the subject. 
I'm I'm speaking in terms of quality. Those comps are horrible. You got to start to answer those questions. Like which properties are actually comparable? And in what ways, you know, are these properties not comparable? Are we just talking about that we have similar quality units, but they've got a swimming pool? Well, okay, well, how much did you deduct from that? Usually you get blank stares. People are not doing a good job with the comps. So you got to get in there and you got to ask some difficult questions because if you don't, you have no idea how much effort went into the underwriting. That's a really good point. I'm putting together some content right now about red flags in conservative underwriting. And I feel like that's a big one because people look at the big four, IRR, cash on cash return, mm -hmm. the equity multiple, and then they think to themselves, well, this one has a higher, higher that's hard to say, higher IRR than the other one. And so this one must be the winner without the ability to crack open the underwriting and say, well, this return it's based on some fairly faulty assumptions that the comps are not accurate. The taxes were not done appropriately. The property taxes have been miscalculated. And I've seen that happen several times with some experienced underwriters recently where they miscalculated their property taxes. And so what kinds of things would you suggest that a passive investor should be able to look into when they crack open that underwriting and validate if the underwriting is truly conservative or not when there's so much in there and it's so overwhelming and they don't want to become underwriting experts, what are the top things they should look for? I start with the comps because that's a huge margin of safety. Do you actually have under market rents? Have you ever gotten an OAB that didn't claim that the rents were under market? Yeah. I don't know if I ever have. So the thing is, everybody's claiming that. So it's one of the first things I like to crack open. And again, it's margin of safety. It's huge. And I think the second thing is, well, what went into the quality of your numbers? Because being an I, people say like, well, numbers tell a story. Numbers don't lie. Okay. But how trustworthy are the numbers? Exactly. Yeah. You're shaking your head. You know what I'm talking garbage about. Garbage in, garbage out, data science. Garbage in, garbage out. Exactly. I don't hear that enough these days. And what I'm saying is, again, I get underwriting from people and sometimes it's early days and I get it. You got a soft quote on the insurance. And, and but do you know when the taxes go up? And how do the taxes go up? Do they go up on the basis of purchase price? Do they go up every three years, like in Tennessee, every three years? But which of the three sets of counties are you at? Is that going to be, you know, this year coming up because we're already at the end of the year? Yeah. Is it next year? It could be anywhere between zero and three years from now when those taxes are going up, for example, in Tennessee. How much research did you do? So that's why I say you got to ask a couple questions. You got to poke a little bit to at least see that you're getting good answers. So again, do the basic numbers make sense? Did you do the work to validate them? How much rent can you really get? And can you pull one comp? Pull one comp. Go look for something that was built about the same time and that's roughly similar in terms of exterior characteristics because you're not going to change that mansard roof. Okay. Do pitch roof. So when you see something with a mansard roof built in 1970 and you got comps that are from 1990 and it's got a pitch roof and it kind of looks a little bit homey and they've got a pool and a, and a gym and they've got, you know, a playground for the kids, that's different, right? The other thing you got to look at is do the, the comps make sense because here's another one I see a lot of. Well, we've got these, we've got these, oh, what do they have? You've got, I can't think of it. It's a long day. Garages. Garages are crazy. Well, we got garages. They're 20% occupied. We're going to renovate them. We're going to up the rent on the garages and we're going to get 100% occupancy. Why are the garages not occupied in the first place? 
Is that not what people are looking for? And here's the other thing. You know, we got a bunch of studio apartments and we're going to build a playground. Well, is that what studio people who are renting studio apartments want? You got to really ask the question, has somebody in the market validated? Because if not, it's you're, you know, you're a visionary and it's just as bad to be ahead of your time as it is to be behind. So make sure that it makes true sense, whatever value edge we're going to do. Oh, and here's the other one that I see all the time. We're going to get the garages rent. We're going to put in laundry, washer and dryer hookups. We're going to charge for assigned parking. And how many things are you going to nickel and dime them for rugs included before they say, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. Well, if you need all of those things to get to that 18% IRR, then you have to start asking yourself, what's the strength of the business plan? Now, when I'm in there actually operating it and we can squeeze out some extra orange juice, right? We're going to look at all that stuff. But does the in-place business cash flow at the price you're buying it? it? Even even okay, like it doesn't have to be a home run, but is it an okay deal at the price you're buying it? And then you can come in and do some value add and see how that goes. And that's really what kept us out of the market for a while because there were a lot of deals that we could make pencil in 2022 and three that if we nickel and dimed everything, like you said, we could start to get returns up to where investors needed to see it in order to have that confidence to invest. But what if we didn't for whatever reason? Let's look at the 2020 deal that we closed right after the, or right before the shutdowns. And we felt like we had to move ahead with the value add because the complex really was only barely keeping its head above water at our purchase price. Like that, looking back at that, maybe we should have had something that was going to perform if we said, hey, if we had to put a stop on all of our value add tomorrow, what would yeah. happen to this business? And that's oh, pivoting. Make sure you can pivot once or twice and the deal still makes sense. If you can't, then it doesn't make sense. Yeah, those are many of the things I'm looking for. Again, yeah, don't nickel and dime, everybody. Don't assume that I keep and see. If the last person failed, why are you going to succeed? Now, hey, maybe they're bad asset managers. If that's the answer, that's fine. Maybe they don't know what the property's worth. They didn't optimize it. Maybe they are charging under market rents, but you got to have the story behind the numbers. And so often I see like, well, hey, look, we got like 16% IRR and we didn't even consider the fact that we might be able to build on this property. Well, did you even go and talk to the city? Oh, that's my other favorite one. It's like, you know, we're going to have to repurpose this. We're going to do a conversion. You just go down to the city and see how do you feel about converting this apartment to a hotel or vice versa. The people at the city, they want to talk to you. They love it when somebody comes to them ahead of time and says, this is the kind of project we're looking at. Well, you know, they may talk your ear off. You know, like, hey, that's exactly the sort of project we need. And hey, by the way, did you know? And, you know, we think we can get that approved in so and so many months and that it's going to be this or that difficult. But when I see people like they didn't even make the call, if you're shy, you're in the wrong business. That's oh, so many good points in there. So many good points because, again, I don't feel like my limited partners have to be an expert to nitpick at the underwriting. But when I first started my business, what I would do is I would pick a deal and I would pretend I actually wanted to buy that deal because if the thing kept growing legs as I went down the rabbit hole, eventually I would buy it. But I didn't know at the beginning if it was going to have legs or not. And I would go in like I'm going to buy this deal. A lot of them I didn't buy. I would ask all the questions. I would do all the research as if I was going to buy it. And I learned so much from the process. Just asking all the questions. I would get on the phone with a seller, especially if it was a for sale by owner on LoopNet or something, 
And he would, like you said, talk my ear off about the market and the asset class and all, because he's trying to sell it to me, basically. And like I said, a lot of them I didn't buy, but every single one I learned. And so this is what I tell my limited partners. It's okay if you don't invest on this deal, because they feel like if they chew your ear off and ask a lot of questions and they feel bad, then they don't want to talk to you again. And like, let's go down this rabbit hole as if you were going to invest in this deal. And let's just answer all the questions. And if it ends up being not the right fit, you will have learned a lot. And the next one will continue to do this until you get to the point where you feel comfortable investing, because that's exactly what I did in my business to feel comfortable buying. So how do you feel about those endless conversations that we're having Mm -hmm. with investors? I find them to be extremely valuable. Does your experiences and love as a teacher serve you? in those situations? Well, I think it does because when you get a new passive investor, you can tell. Someone's new, they've got a lot of questions and it's okay because look, maybe they invest in two or three or five deals. If they're asking a lot of questions because they're new and they decide to go with you, that look at the total lifetime value of that relationship. So don't look at it like, you know, I've only got 15 minutes for you. That's not the way to do it. Bring these people along. It's well worth, and even if it just sharpens you for the next conversation that, wow, I got six questions there and I was only able to adequately answer four. I had to say, well, I'm going to get back to you on those other two and then make sure you do get back. That's important, but don't forget the second step. Do it. Yes. Well, that's a great point that it's often as valuable for us as operators as Mm -hmm. it is for the person Mm -hmm. asking the questions, because oftentimes I can't answer 100% of the questions and I have to go do some research and learn my own deal better, which sounds, maybe I shouldn't be admitting that in public, but that is exactly what happens where they ask great questions and I'm getting as much out of it as they are. Perfect. So, all right, I have to, I can't stop thinking about the mansard roof comment that you made. It's almost like you're in my Pinterest where I'm looking at all the mansard roof makeover options because they're so bad and there's not much you can do about it. So I'm a little distracted. I wanted to go back and have you talk to us about what you mentioned about slow travel, because I feel like this leads us into what's coming next for George, because we're doing the slow travel thing right now. And it's been a dream of mine for probably 20 years. And so, yes, the grass is actually greener on this side. Is it perfect? No, there are some weeds and all that. But we're really enjoying our time. So what's coming next for George? How are you planning the next maybe 10 to 12 years your passive income direction, your lifestyle decisions, your relationship with the rat race, with your job, and also with your business. Like, tell us, just tell us what that looks like. Well, yeah, first let me tell you what I've done. I mean, it's just amazing. When I look back, you know, it's easy to say like, well, I don't really have successes, you know, because why do I have the Lamborghini? But look, I lost 40 pounds, okay? Dog by arthritis my whole life. The only way I've known to get ahead of it. I know people have they got all these, they get, they let the doctors operate on them and they're sad. You know, later on, they have regret. I didn't do that, but I couldn't do that. Like, for example, I do over 600 dips every five days. If I don't get to 100 by noon, then it's not going to happen. I got to get at least 400 before dinner. So I got to noon today, I'm at like 60. And I did my last, I get 99, 100, just two minutes before I logged on. But see, those are the sorts of problems I have in my life. Now that I have passive income, it's like, wow, I better get to 100 dips before noon. And learning to dance, it's another one. So I dance either tango, salsa, bachata, or something equally interesting every night. That's one of the things I like to do. It's huge for me because it's a motivator. It helps to keep me motivated, to keep my body in shape. And I know every evening I can go out and do something really exciting. I got an unlimited pass. Every night there's a class and I want to be there. That means I'd better be efficient in my work. 
helps me focus. Well, and that kind of leads me to, okay, so what's my adventure? Well, my next adventure is I want to take the family to Argentina, do some slow travel. This is Yerba Mate, in case you're wondering. This is what they drink. It's tea. They're obsessive about it. And it comes from the, from the indigenous people. I want to say it's the Huarani Indians. And this stuff, it's fun and exciting. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, what can I do now to learn the culture? So for $10 an hour, I got hooked up with a tutor and I speak Spanish three hours a week. I'm learning faster than I could, even if I paid way too much for a college course. Would cost a whole lot of money and what would they teach? Conjugate verbs and a whole bunch of vocabulary. Garbage. You can do that with an app for free online. But what I want to do, I want to continue to learn tango. I want to go down to the land of the tango. I'm going to take my family with me. Maybe we'll go to see Patagonia. Maybe we'll go to Ushuaia, the end of the world. We might even take a cruise to Antarctica. And how do you do that? Right? It all starts with the first lesson. You have to not only learn Spanish, but learn the weird sort of Spanish that they speak in Argentina. They don't even call it Spanish. They call it Castellano Argentino. doesn't pronounce it like the Spanish that you heard in, in, in your classes. So that's the sort of thing I can do. And I'm doing it with the American dollar. I'm doing it with technology, $10 an hour. And you know what? My next thing, I want to learn Argentinian Creole guitar. Okay. I could do that for like three or $4 an hour. And I, you can't do that here. You can't get a guitar instructor for three or $4 an hour. And would they instruct me in the sort of culture that I'm interested in learning? I want to do cultural travel. So that's what I'm doing in my personal life. That's what passive income allows me to do. I also like, I have a, I have all these drinks with me here. This is some soda water, but I make a rule in my life. I drink only out of gold frame glasses. Okay. I get there for $1. This glass was $1 and I got a set $1 a piece from a thrift store. But I can do that because after my dance lesson, I can drive, you know, five miles down the street to the thrift store. And, you know, maybe it didn't take a lot of money, $1 a glass, but now I got gold rim glasses. So, so that's what I do. I just, I'm learning. I'm enjoy every day I'm living my adventure, but I'm also learning so I can take it to the next level of adventure. Oh, that's okay. That's beautiful. First of all, my trip to Ushuaia and our cruise to Antarctica was canceled due to COVID. And so I'm feeling a little jealousy here. I mean, we can always go back, but we had it booked and we were ready to go. And I just, it's just really disappointing that we weren't able, because it was an eclipse year. So we're going to go see the solar eclipse and I just super jealous. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I would never have even dreamt about doing before we started being able to build passive income. I love, I just love what you're saying. And the dance thing, my kids just asked my husband this a couple of days ago. He invited me to the little Valentine's dance that they're having at church. And my kids thought that was so cute. And they said, are you actually going to dance with mom? He says, no, I don't know how to dance. And they said, well, why don't you take her to go get some dance lessons? And he says, because you know how your mom is. If we take dance lessons, she's going to make us go on Dancing with the Stars. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get her started. I mean, it's just beautiful. But see, that's the thing. It's like, well, I don't like have any, you know, dance accomplishments, but you know what? Being able to live my life the way I choose, life by design, and I have time for that. I could have brought you my, my fashion, like nowadays. I can, I modify my clothes or I talk to designers and I have like literally bespoke stuff made for me. Nice. Like it's just the imagination. Like, because they're like, well, you could do that with an IT salary. Yeah, I could. But 
living my life completely out of my imagination. My imagination has expanded, expanded 10x since I focused on this passive income journey. Yes, I agree. Now, in some ways, I feel like my creativity has been a bit stifled. And you tell me if I'm off, off base here, maybe I'm missing something. As I've become more and more a specialist at raising capital and in, this, in a particular mm -hmm. niche, I feel like I'm not able to speak on as broad a subject, topics, because I'm now I'm no longer watching the news. I'm no longer watching anything mm -hmm. that catches my eye on YouTube. I'm really like focused on this niche. Have you found that your ability to be broad has been sacrificed for your attempt to be narrow? I don't know if that's really happened to me. I mean, in some ways it has because... I could tell you the reason that I no longer do gilding anymore in my basement. I have actually a stove. I have a complete kitchen in my basement and I would put cover things with 24 karat gold. Well, one of the reasons that it hasn't happened is I've got my books on tape. Okay. Mm. So this latest book, I'm learning the story of Shakespeare and I do that while I'm working out. So I think that these audiobooks help me that I don't feel like I'm stifled, but in some ways, I mean, Hey, it takes a lot of time to get the flywheel running. So let's be clear. You are passive income. You're going to be busier for a while. Yeah. Still, so embrace it. Okay. Embrace it. Passive income is a, or passive investing is a lie. At least on the intake, you're working hard to make sure that's a good investment. So, you know, some things I gave up. I hadn't been playing my instruments. I started that up a few months ago. And I haven't done anything with gilding for about three years now. But I'm going to come back to that. So, I mean, yes, it is hard, but I think you just got to look for the opportunities. You just got to manage that time better. And for me, continuing with the audiobooks has been huge. And mm -hmm. the fact that you don't listen to the news actually makes you more interesting to me, Emma. Yes. <laughs> I love you it. You're probably I... spending your time doing something interesting, something truly interesting. Participating, like, you know, watching Dancing with the Stars. Take those lessons with your husband and uh, yeah, and go, go out on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. Right now we're in the YouTube rabbit hole trying to build a YouTube channel. And I think that's taken a lot of time. But like you said, yeah, I guess that's true. It's like becoming a specialist is something you are busier for a while on the front end. But on the back end, now that you know the thing and you can actually teach other people about it, it does open you up to be able to enjoy new things. And while it lasts, yeah, it's fun. Like that's what I'm choosing to do with my adventure time today. That is actually fascinating. So that, that's actually a good point. And I need to kind of remember that when I don't have time to sew or I don't have time to play the piano or the guitar like I'd like to and talk about all sorts of wide variety of politics and macroeconomics. I, I feel sometimes like, well, I'm just choosing to do something else for a little while now. Okay, so our families have got to plan a family vacation, man. Like you and my husband, we get along so well and we're into all the same well, are kinds you in of- Florida like, right now? Because we're headed out to Orlando. I think you were headed towards Orlando. Last we just left Orlando. We're actually in Dallas. And so we were going to be in Orlando, like I said, the whole year. But then this opportunity in Dallas came up and like oh, Florida insurance rates, man, they kind of killed our uh, let's buy a house in Orlando plan. So now we're looking at a little fishing cabin outside of Dallas there. So we'll see. It's, and that's what I say. It can change this is on your a little night. fishing cabin, correct? So you're going to be here yeah. for, I think, using six to nine months. Yeah, Beautiful. well... <laughs> I'm sure we could fish in Orlando too. This RV park opportunity came up and we live in our RV full time. So we're like, let's go out there and check it out. Well, yeah, fishing in Florida is great. I wasn't quite so into it, but I have a partner and he catches those sand crabs, which mm -hmm. I want to say are more like an insect. <laughs> but that was fun. You know, you get the little scooper out 
I was helping him catch the sand crab and he'd hook one and then he'd cast out there into the surf. So yeah, I think we can get something together. Love to yeah, meet your husband. Really he seems point. really nice. He was on We're one of your the... calls. I oh. got to meet him. He meet him. We're at the biggest bass sport fishing lake in the country. If you like bass Ooh. fishing, here's the place, man. So well, I learned um, to one of the biggest walleye fishing lakes in the world, Lake Erie, walleye capital of the world. Maybe my husband would be more. I'm too ADHD for fishing. He's just like, oh, you okay. stand there and you just relax and enjoy it. And I'm like, I'm bored. Fishing is not well, my yeah, thing. I like a lot of fish and I took my kids out for walleye. We did that in Detroit River, Lake St. Clair. And that was a little closer to our house, but that was good. I mean, the kids, they both hooked something or reeled something in. And my younger son, I think he reeled in a couple even, but he was like one inch too small. But between me and the captain, we got a whole bunch to bring home. It was yeah. good. Oh, so, okay. Normally this is the part where I would say, how do people get a hold of you? But there was one more thing I wanted to ask you that we didn't get around to. You mentioned the changing capital markets a few minutes ago, and I've definitely been noticing the capital markets are changing and becoming more expensive, both from a demographic standpoint, meaning our 45 to 55 year old investors are Gen Xers and it's a small generation. And with this wacky COVID, post-COVID, it's weird. I feel like the capital markets have definitely shifted. I always have said economics is a psychology more than it's a financial or a, or a science. Can you explain what you meant by the capital markets are changing? Well, yeah, people are getting more conservative. They're achieving more capital on the sidelines. They, they see that maybe it's not the time to invest in real estate and they don't want to go and do something that's for their field. Well, I think that's wrong. And I think that there are going to be a lot of great deals made in 2024. I think that rates are probably going down, maybe a little slower than we expect. Who knows? But we've already got word that they are set to go down faster than we thought they might. So again, be prepared. Be prepared to be surprised. And again, people are a little tighter with their capital. And we have maybe a little less of that wealth effect. Maybe some of those people who were investing in syndications. Well, guess what? They didn't get the 20% IRR or they didn't get the quick exit. Well, we have to deal with that. So I think it's very astute. When you say that capital markets are a little bit more about psychology than maybe about, you know, technical or, or maybe more psychological than technical, 100%. Favorite quote from Benjamin Graham that in the short term, that the capital markets are a voting machine, but over the long term, it's a weighing machine. So you want to be a value investor. You want to take your time. Think about it. What is your time horizon? Does this investment make sense? If you have money that you're going to keep for like six months, do you invest in the stock market? No. You're decently likely to have less six months from now in the stock market. And that goes not for this time, but for any time. So you, ha you have to think about that. And yes, it, it, we wouldn't have these value opportunities if capital markets weren't a voting machine in the short term. So yeah, don't let it phase you. I know you don't, but I'm speaking to your audience here. So if you're letting it phase you, don't let it phase you and realize that we're going to go through these fads and it's a good thing. Like when I hear people say, oh, I want to shorten the stock because it's overpriced. Well, how do you think it got overpriced in the first place? Or you invest in something that's undervalued and maybe you're right, but how did it get undervalued? If you're not ready to take a 15 or 20% loss at least before it hits bottom, you know, you're not an investor, you're a speculator. Mm. Okay. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say quite that. And I feel like that brings a lot of my investing 
thesis or my personal philosophy and to focus in a single phrase. Like you've got to be prepared to lose a certain amount. Like people say, don't invest what you can't afford to lose. And that's kind of always always said it. But I'm not in here to lose money. I'm not in here to invest money so I can lose money. I'm in here for the long game. And because I feel prepared to accept a certain level of losses, it helps me to stay focused on the long game. And I've ended up gaining, I have lost money, but I've ended up gaining 10x, 20x, depending on how you want to measure it, more than I've lost. Because I think I go into it that attitude, like I'm going to lose about 10 to 15% of the time. And I have to be okay with that. And that's my my Only one investor buys at the bottom. And only one investor sells at the absolute tippy top of the market. <laughs> and everybody else, it times the market just a little bit off. So Ooh. yeah, you have to be prepared for it. You have to be strong. If you got the reserves and if you got the margin of safety, and if the deal really makes sense, if you can pivot, you're going to survive. And yes, you're going you're gonna to live to fight another day and get the 2x, 3x, 5x gain that you deserve because you, you did your homework. Yes. Yeah. Bull markets are coming back. That's one thing we always know. It doesn't matter what's going on in the bear market. Bulls coming back and it's going to last about 10 years. And so I feel like it's just a little passage I have to go through right now. And if this is the bear market, I'm actually doing pretty well because this is like the easiest bear market I've ever experienced. What proves you are a real investor, but you stick it out that you do your best to try to time the market, knowing that you can never do it perfectly and you're ready. Right. I mean, you're not going to do the same number of deals when the market is hard, but you're still out there looking. And when it makes sense, you pull the trigger. Mm, Yeah, exactly. And so validating to hear you say that because this is hard. And uh, we're the survivors. We're the ones who are going to make it through here, Emma. And some of the others that maybe this sounds a little odd to them, I hope they have the reserves to make it through. But this is what you need to do to be a real investor and to get through those difficulties because you're right. For those who, survive to fight another day to see the other side you see that next major bull run in real estate or in the stock market then we're going to be back to what all you need to do is lay your chips down and you're going to win mm, nice. you got to oh. survive first yep the sound sound advice george thank you so much for joining us today i really enjoyed our conversation and i'm not kidding about planning a family vacation together so maybe we can get on the horn about that maybe next year we're going to be in europe all summer just saying. Whoa, I like that. Well, hey, how's that for a destination? Well, I would love that. And I would love to get our families together. I think my wife would just love you and would love to, to meet your family. Seven children. I'm just impressed. I think that is in itself one of the hugest accomplishments a person can have. And I appreciate you having me on the show and your deep and thoughtful questions. This is a podcast par excellence. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay. How do people get a hold of you, George? And I always ask everybody, why should people bother after the show to reach out to you? All right. Well, first of all, you can get in touch with me at www.robertscapitalenterprises.com. You can email me at george at robertscapitalenterprises.com. I'm also very active on LinkedIn. And why should you get in touch with me? Well, I'm a connector. Like you said before, I love people. And when I run my Wednesday call or when I have my podcast, I get to speak to amazing people like Emma Powell. And other amazing people too, you can meet on Wednesday. So come out, you can come to my LinkedIn. That's how you can find out more about the call. You can find some links there where you can register. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm happy to mentor investors. So whether you're a new investor and you're looking for you know, some validation, like does this make sense? 
I'll be happy to, to bring you along for the ride. As Emma said, if you are a new passive investor and you're thinking of, well, I got, you know, 20 questions and maybe, you know, syndicator X isn't going to deal with me. Well, guess what? I'm willing to give you the white glove treatment. Okay. That's one of the positive things about working with somebody who isn't yet managing billions of dollars of other people's money. Come with me. You'll get the white glove treatment and I'm happy to do it for you too, because you know what? Somebody had to answer my questions when I was new. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And you have the heart of a teacher. It comes out of, oozes out of every pore of you. And that's one of the, that's one of the things I think people should be looking for. So appreciate it, George. Oh, I felt like I had to cut it off at an hour because I didn't want it to be a Joe Rogan podcast episode. But George and I talked about so many things, like even before and after the recording that I'm going to have him back on in a couple of months because we had a whole list of stuff we wanted to talk about, like biggest mistakes you've made, what you've learned from it. Like, how do you get your spouse on board with this kind of stuff when they're not really catching the vision? And also geeking out more on some of the macroeconomic trends that we're seeing in our industry and how we can make decisions when things are coming at us from experts, how to synthesize all of that into some of our investing plans. So if you enjoyed George as a guest and you would like to hear more from him, definitely give it a thumbs up or a like, and I will make sure that we have that happen maybe in the next six months or so. And be sure to check out George's meetup. We're both very active on LinkedIn. He'll have a link over there. It's every Wednesday. I try to make that one as often as I can. And be sure to check out our meetup as well. Every Monday night, it's a free investing club. Basically like Shark Tank or an angel investing club where an operator will come, they'll pitch us our deal. And then behind closed doors, we will pick it apart and do some of those things that George was talking about where we're trying to figure out not only what are the metrics telling us, but how can we pick that apart and make sense of are these assumptions that they're using actually valid to be yielding the returns that they're telling us it will yield. Extremely educational, great networking value, and it's free. It's a great place for both active and passive investors to kind of learn what they're doing, how to figure this out, especially if you're the kind of person who likes to drink from a fire hose. It's also an opportunity for you to get to know us and the way that we do things and the way that we structure our deals. So if you want to be a passive investor, you can check us out in our portal at partnerwithrise.com where we have a list of all of the things that we are personally invested in for early retirement. And you can pick and choose from those deals, which ones you like and which ones you're going to catch us on the next time. Again, please reach out after the show. We put these out for the networking value so that we can help you become a better investor so you can go on your next passive income adventure.